Here is the next instalment of the Gourmet Gospel. Section 2. No law equals no sin. Quotes. There ain't no sin and there ain't no virtue. There's just stuff people do. John Steinbeck, The Grapes of Wrath. I rather like this. Outside all laws except gravitation and germination. Thomas Hardy, Jude the Obscure. Billy, in many respects, was little more than a sort of upright barbarian, much as Adam might have been, ere the serpent wriggled himself into his company. Herman Melville, Billy Budd, Sailor. What are we to make, then, of this terrible thing called law? Are we to be shackled so? Are we to stagger under its dismal, oppressive and condemning yoke? And must we forever wrestle in a losing match with its offspring, sin? Can we ever be sprung from the law-sin trap? Sin has no other root but law, no other means to exist. Where there is no law, there is no transgression, said Paul. Apart from law, sin is dead. Herein lies our great hope. If we can live apart from law, then all the power of sin, along with its condemnation, is removed. We may enjoy a better Eden, not just the law-tainted paradise from which mankind was evicted, but the pre-law state of innocence described in the first chapter of the book of Genesis, in which there is no law to ensnare us, no forbidden fruit, no knowledge or even potential knowledge of evil, no concept, no idea, no notion, no possibility of wrong. Are we permitted such a freedom? Yes, and on the cross is the crux of the matter decided. I shall now quote a key truth from the Bible that informs this entire book, a colossal declaration from the book of Colossians, a testament of such power, magnificence, and glory that it may transform the entire human race, for it says Christ cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. That quote comes from the New International Version of the Bible, but I also love the following translation from the Phillips Bible. Christ has utterly wiped out all the damning evidence of broken laws and commands which always hung over our heads and has completely annulled it by nailing it over his own head on the cross. I shall return to this passage often, for its implications are wonderful. Elsewhere in the Bible, the message is reinforced, telling us that law no longer addresses us. We are no longer under its supervision. We have been released from it. We, too, die to it that day. And so, returning to our metaphor of the fairground game with the wire, we can now play the game with the electricity turned off. We can proceed from one end to the other as carelessly as we like, guaranteed to win. 
without any danger of ever being buzzed out of the game. Or we could compare law to an electromagnet. When power runs through it, those who have one kind of polarity are pulled toward it, forced to obey the law. Others with the opposite polarity repelled by it, forced to disobey. Neither is free. But we who are not under law are neither attracted nor repelled. With no power running through it, the magnet is deactivated. And in any case, we have no polarity for it to act upon. Alternatively, observing the law may be likened to walking a very high tightrope without a safety net. One slip and you're dead. But where law is absent, we are walking safely on solid ground. Death to the Decalogue Quotes That stony law I stamp to dust and scatter religion abroad to the four winds as a torn book and none shall gather the leaves. William Blake, America a Prophecy Haven't you heard the old proverbial saw? Whoever bound a lover by a law Love is law unto itself. Geoffrey Chaucer, The Canterbury Tales, The Knight's Tale Though love alone fulfil the law. John Milton, Paradise Lost Now that we are freed to live law-free lives, what are we to make of the Ten Commandments, otherwise known as the Decalogue? Are they not law? Were they not also nailed to the cross with Christ? It may be easy to dismiss the more obscure Old Testament strictures in the Scriptures, such as prohibitions against cutting hair or clipping beards. But can we be so dismissive of those sacred stone tablets that Moses lugged about on Mount Sinai to the accompaniment of earthquakes and thunderbolts? The short answer is yes. The Two Commandments Quote, Do unto others as you would have others do unto you seems to be one thing you can just grab hold of, and it's really good, and you don't need anything else. Do unto others is a self-pleasing rule. Eddie Izzard, Stripped Stand-Up Comedy Show Let us consider what Jesus has to say on the applicability of the Ten Commandments. When a crowd asks him what they must do to accomplish the works God requires, he simply answers, Believe in the one he has sent. And at the crucifixion, the mere request to be remembered is enough to bring into paradise the man condemned beside him. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. No mention of the Decalogue either for the crowd or for the man. Elsewhere, 
Jesus boils the commandments down to just two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And sometimes Jesus mentions only the second of these two commandments. In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. This second commandment is also known as the golden rule, or in the words of the book of James, royal law. If you keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. And Paul encapsulates our new code of behavior thus, Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. We could state it even more simply. Unlike scientists who, as they weave their complex equations, still yearn in vain for a simple, unifying and beautiful theory of everything, we, who weave in the material of scripture, words and meanings of words, have found our theory of everything, our divine equation, our beautiful solution, our sword of revelation, to cut the Gordian knot of confusion. And it is this, that love transcends law. So God's commands are not complicated or burdensome, but distilled to the simplest of precepts. Now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask, who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask, who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it? No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. Thus, we may supplant the former vocabulary of the Ten Commandments and instead refer only to the two commandments, the golden rule or the royal law, as we live our lives. We may call it the duologue. Theology of the Absurd Ah, yes, say the legalists, but if Jesus really scrapped the Ten Commandments, why would he spell them out to the rich young man who asked what he must do to inherit eternal life? And then, having heard the young man profess he had kept all of them, why would Jesus then give him an eleventh commandment to sell all he has and give to the poor? As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, 
Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad, because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. At first glance, Jesus' impositions on the man may appear beyond exacting, but now look deeper to what I shall call Christ's theology of the absurd, a theme he also plies in his Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. What is Jesus saying here? Does he really want us to mutilate God's image in our bodies by gouging out our own eyes or cutting off our own hands if they offend us? Is he seriously suggesting a man's innate desire for a woman is the same thing as bedding her? Would that it were so easy. And, referring to other passages in the Gospels, does Jesus really want us to grant evil people the power to multiply their wrongs against us? Does he who lamented the dicing of Roman soldiers for his clothing really expect us to give our shirts to those who demand our coats? And, in the ultimate blow to ill-founded hope, does he seriously expect us to achieve perfection? Or rather, in all these cases, is Jesus making a laughingstock out of law, driving it into realms of absurdity and impossibility in order to disabuse us of any reliance on commandment-keeping as a source of salvation, guidance, or righteousness? Note that when Jesus dispenses the 10 plus 1 commandments to the rich young man, he prefaces the plus 1 with, If you want to be perfect. Could it be that Jesus spontaneously invents an additional stipulation to convince the young man and us that we are embarked on a futile course akin to getting a camel through the eye of a needle if we suppose to win eternity by keeping a set of commandments? Thus, we may infer Christ's message to be something like this. You who would mount to heaven on your little ladders of kept commandments Acknowledge the folly of your attempt. With man, it is impossible. Rather, rest in me, in whom all things are possible. Those little ladders are akin to the Tower of Babel, described in the book of Genesis, 
which men built in the misguided hope they could ascend by it to heaven. The Lord's intervention to confuse man's speech and thwart the attempt was therefore an act of mercy to save him from an infinitely futile endeavour. We are also told Jesus looked at the rich young man and loved him prior to issuing that plus one commandment. What message may we infer in that look? Perhaps it was, I hate to have to do this to you. I know what sorrow my words will cause you, but I must overthrow your ideology that thinks to inherit eternal life through law. Salvation is my gift to you, neither improved nor diminished by anything you do or don't do. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough. Let us therefore weigh Christ's spirit of satire in these examples. Far from being a champion of law, he is subjecting it to the fierce glare of irony. Otherwise, what torments would follow were we to take him literally? You've been listening to my audiobook recording of The Gourmet Gospel, and I'll continue releasing the book in installments over the coming months. The ebook is currently free at most retailers, and you can find the links to get your copy by going to my website, poetprofit.com, where profit spelt P-R-O-P-H-E-T. You can also get a free copy of my epic poem, Obama's Dream, by going to the free book page and joining my readers list. Last week I recited a couple of Shakespeare sonnets, and in one of them Shakespeare is comparing himself to other people, desiring this man's art and that man's scope. Here's another sonnet in which Shakespeare is again comparing himself to others, in this case other writers or other poets. Sonnet 76 Why is my verse so barren of new pride, so far from variation or quick change? Why, with the time, do I not glance aside to new-found methods and to compound strange? Why write I still all one, ever the same, and keep invention in a noted weed, that every word doth almost tell my name, showing their birth and where they did proceed. Oh, no, sweet love, I always write of you. And you and love are still my argument, so all my best is dressing old words new, spending again what is already spent. For as the sun is daily new and old, so is my love still telling what is told. It's comforting to know that even centuries before social media, it was possible even then to feel left behind by progress, or what was called progress. As always, when I quote other poets in this podcast, it's from memory. You'll just have to trust me on that one. Until next week, this has been Abdiel Leroy. <laughs>